Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Nora Loretto, half of Sandy and Nora Talk Politics, author of the book Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnosed the COVID-19 Pandemic. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Nora, today, The Chronic 2022, worst sequel ever. (laughs) (laughs) A sequel? I think we're at episode, like, five. Also, did you hear the one about that CBC journalist who left to start a podcast where they just talk shit about the CBC? Mm -hmm. No, I mean mean the other one. That one, right? (laughs) Welcome back to Shortcuts, Nora, where we talk shit about the news. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Miles Jeffers, Slade T. Dog, Mo LaBelle, Samuel Robinson, Nick Kutnikoff, Riley McKenty, Nick Duranlo, and Siri. My name is Siri Arnett. I am a closed caption editor living in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, and I support Canada Land because I want them to have enough funding money to keep making such kick-ass original content. I really like how well they change with the times when they need to, and I'm getting a great education about the important issues in my country. Nora, here are some Christmas gifts that I received on Twitter. At Jesse Brown's latest podcast, downplaying Omicron is incredibly dangerous. I can't tell you how much respect I've lost for Jesse Brown. Didn't have Jesse Brown being an ableist eugenics fan for shit show bingo, but here we are. Fuck you, dude. 
Hey, Jesse, if there's a spike in deaths on account of Omicron, do you apologize for being an asshole? That's just a sampling. Uh, so, Nora, COVID-related deaths have gone up on account of Omicron. Uh, ICU admission uh, is also going up. Hospitalization has spiked. All of those numbers are up since you and I criticized the media for scaremongering about Omicron. So do I apologize for being an asshole? Do you? <laughs> I got a lot of those messages too. But I have to say I got more messages from people thanking me for and thanking us for articulating something that they hadn't been able to articulate yet, which is like trying to understand why there's this disconnect between what they're feeling and what they're hearing from the media. I don't think that either of us have anything to apologize for. I don't want to say that people are misunderstanding the episode, but I think that there's a little bit of that in there. Looking back at where we were four weeks ago and where we are today, I mean, I'm in a city where the case count is over, it's like 1,100 cases per 100,000 people. That's very, very high. But the scaremongering, what has that done? Like, what, what, has, what has that materially impacted in the conversations and in the ways that the governments are responding to the pandemic. And I find myself exactly where I was uh, the last time I was on the show a couple of weeks ago saying this is not helpful. Yeah, I try to take a nuanced view of these things. And I try, like, like, look, the stakes of whether or not I eat shit and apologize or not, or, you know, like whatever pride of like, was I right? Like, it doesn't matter at all compared to what people are going through. And when I heard from listeners who were like, some of them were just genuinely felt hurt by like hearing me laugh, you know, like people who lost people or people who have like unvaccinated kids and they're just scared or they're immunocompromised and they're scared. People I think are under a lot of duress because of a lot of that fear mongering, like to hear like a glib, you know, mocking tone, the tone, um, like, should I apologize for my tone? Should I be playing? Yeah. You know what? I'll apologize for my tone. Like if they thought I was laughing at them, I wasn't, but I really, I don't like the idea that people felt like I was, and I'm happy to express some contrition for that, but I have to fall with you on the actual substance of what we said you know, the job is to criticize the media. And when I see headline after headline scaring the hell out of people, maybe they thought for good reasons, but I want to dig into that with you as to like, what was the impact? We talked about how Bruce Arthur of the Toronto Star said that everything Omicron does is exponential. And we talked about how the Ontario Science Table uh, head uni told us that it's a myth that Omicron is milder. They were wrong. It was looking like it was milder then. It has turned out to be milder. It's milder. Yeah. And I, but I think that it's, you know, like so much about this pandemic, it isn't actually about the facts. <laughs> I put out a very short Twitter poll a couple of nights ago and 140 people voted. And I said, here are the numbers in Canada. Here's where things are in Canada right now. And I picked the, the provinces with the highest number of cases. And at the time, I mean, the, the cases have gone up. So, you know, Quebec was at 1,100 cases per 100,000 people. Um, Nova Scotia was at 515. Ontario was at 585. And Manitoba was in the 600s. And I said, did you know these numbers? Like generally, not obviously, do you have them memorized? But is this the sense of where things are in Canada that you have? Or do you have the sense that things are very different where you are? And 77% of the people who voted in that poll said that they did not have that sense. And it's because the way that journalists are reporting this in every part of the country is our jurisdiction is the worst. This is the worst that it has been. Things are bad. Things are getting bad. Everyone's going to die. And there's absolutely no perspective. Like, I didn't actually get too many people demanding that I apologize. Um, I did get some people who were frustrated that we took that lighthearted kind of approach or tone. And it's like, listen, 
I have been counting the deaths like no one else in this country. Mm -hmm. Like, if you fucking think that I think any of this is funny, fuck you, actually. And I also think that you have to be able to laugh at stuff. Like, that is the only healthy way to deal with something as completely absurd and horrifying as what we're going through right now. The tone that I take is an exasperation of someone who has been watching this so closely from day one and seeing absolutely no change in the tone no analysis to allow people to situate themselves where they are and instead to be like, well, we just can't trust anything right now. We can't trust the numbers. We can't trust anything. Testing's collapsed. So in, in that poll, you know, I say, well, Quebec is, you know, the highest by a lot. And that tells us that we need to be looking at what's happening in Quebec's ICUs and Quebec's death count, because that's going to signal what happens in the rest of Canada if Quebec is so bad right now. And rather than people responding and saying like, oh yeah, what is happening in Quebec? How are deaths going? And, and by the way, deaths are not shooting up very fast, which is great, which is to not say that there's no deaths and to not discount the people who have died. That's really horrible. But they're certainly not rising as fast as what we saw in the first wave. I mean, which was a horrifying situations. But in looking at this data, they then say, well, it's, you know, Ontario's not counting the numbers. British Columbia is not counting the numbers. And it's like Quebec's not counting the numbers either. <laughs> like, no, the testing has collapsed in all parts of this country. But we have never been counting accurately. We've never been counting anything accurately. But rather than feeling like everything is upside down and you have no way to orient yourself and you don't even know which way is, is forward or up, you have to be able to grab onto certain things. And I think that that's what has been so hard for a lot of people because you can't grab onto anything because everything's fake. The politicians want us to die and you know we don't know when this is going to end. As someone who's been watching the data super, super closely, I can say, yes, of course, testing has collapsed and contract tracing hasn't existed for basically five months. However, there are still things that are true and that we know and that we can hold on to. And this is where I get so frustrated at the media that we need to tune them out. We really need to tune out the nonstop freaking out. I can't think of a better word than to say it that way because it is delivering nothing. By being scared, Doug Ford is not going to impose better measures. By being afraid and anxious about every single message you hear in the media, Justin Trudeau is not going to open a field hospital or invoke the Emergencies Act. That is not how it works. I feel like we're on a new phase of things. The best way to document it and what I try to do here is do it through what I'm reading in the papers and then compare that with the information we have and the facts that we have. So look, let's get into this first through what has been leading the coverage. And I think if I had to pick one primary point of criticism, it is that we need to abandon the case count metric as our headline metric. There is a psychological impact of telling people every day 10,000, 12,000, 18,000, it's overwhelming. This daily reporting of the case count, not just reporting it every day, which like that's fine, provide that information, but presenting it as the headline metric, the number one thing people like, how's, how are we doing today? What's the case count? Is it a new record? The only relevance of that number is if you can infer or predict hospitalization, ICU, and death from that. And the relationship between case count and those other metrics under Delta bears no relationship to what that means under Omicron. And at a period of time when we had no idea what that ratio was going to be, what case counts even meant, we still just scared the hell out of people day after day. Here's the new case count. Here's the new case count. Here's the new case count. Tell us that if that's relevant or means something, but case counts have decoupled from hospitalization rate, from ICU, and because there's so much asymptomatic Omicron out there. And because you can't get a test, the case counts are meaningless. Well, and hold on. They haven't decoupled from hospitalizations and deaths. The rates have changed. 
And I think that's really important to say they've gone down, which is good news. I take your point. We can still see a relationship. There's obviously a relationship in the lagging indicator. And and I don't think that the media should suppress case counts as best we know them. But I think that it's just been completely wrongheaded at this stage of the game for that to be the key number that we give people every day. That's the big number that, you know, and, and, I, and I actually have seen some media move that to like the last number they report, which I think is positive. But I do feel like that's a major contributor to the fear-mongering. And I think that that fear-mongering was based on a concept that we need to make people afraid so they take this seriously. And how much more seriously can we take this? Who are you talking to? You're talking to the people who did all the things. The people who are reading this are the people who were online trying to get a vaccine, who, you know, homeschooled their kids and who accepted the limitations to our rights, right? Mm -hmm. At a certain point, it's just this like, daily needle in your skull of be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, and that has health consequences. And then I see not just what media is saying through headlines, but I'm reading, you know, just like what journalists are saying elsewhere on social media, and this atmosphere of social corrosion, of it being downloaded onto the citizenry that the only way out of this is through, like, personal actions— Yes, vaccination and wearing a mask are massive things that, like, everybody needs to do. But then we get into this level of, like, I'm seeing, like, you know, Globe Mail journalist Marsha Lederman, you know, blue check mark on Twitter saying, you know, if you ignored government, you know, recommendations and went on vacation, don't post your pictures to Twitter. Like, nobody needs to see that, you know? And I jokingly tweeted back, like, yeah, and if you, like, had Christmas dinner with your family, don't share your joy. Nobody needs to know that, asshole. And people thought I was serious. You know, like we're now pointing fingers at each other for like going on vacation or like getting together for a party is like being a bad citizen. And that's what's keeping this thing going. Yeah. And Andrew Coyne is on Twitter yelling at all of these like numbered anti-vaxxer accounts, like journalists yelling at their readers and shaming and chiding the people that they're supposed to represent. And that's completely compatible with the messaging that we're getting from the prime minister. Who's telling us, like, how do we get out of this pandemic, he tweets? It's up to you. Only you can prevent forest fires. Here's what you need to do. You know, nothing about what he needs to do. And all about vaccination, which 77% of us have done. And then he's on TV in Quebec equating anti-vaxxers with uh, the racists and misogynists, right? And this narrative that that's who's to blame. That's who's to blame. And I've been, you know, very vocal that, like, this ignorant, selfish campaign of anti-vaxxers. But like the truth of the matter is that, yes, there are a lot of anti-vaccinated or unvaccinated people in hospitals right now in ICUs. My sense, Nora, tell me what you think, is that for every one of them who's like an active anti-vaxxer, there are like five or 10 people. And, you know, you can take what you will from from, from my projections here. Uh, it's anecdotal. But I don't think that every damn one of the people who is not vaccinated in this country is like an active racist, misogynist, anti-vaxxer. There are a lot of people who can't go get the vaccines, who, don't, who can't take a break from work. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of language. Mm-hmm. I think that it would fall along class lines more than anything else. And we haven't prioritized high-density housing or high-density workplaces for testing, for uh, first priority for vaccinations, for paid sick leave. And then, therefore, that's where a lot of the unvaccinated population resides. Then I read Gary Mason in the Globe and Mail, one one of the most senior columnists in the Globe and Mail. He wrote that it's time 
Hospitals everywhere, he writes, are reviewing protocols for treatment. Who gets priority? Who lives and who dies? Many, myself included, wonder why people who've willfully chosen not to get vaccinated, people who are largely responsible for filling ICUs to beyond capacity, Mm -hmm. should get priority over someone who's fully vaccinated but is in need of medical attention. He's saying let the unvaccinated die. Yeah. They're responsible for full ICUs. (laughs) Right? Not not government policy that hasn't expanded ICU capacity in the last two years, the last five years. I mean, it is extremely annoying, frustrating. I'm, I, I have no words. I, I'm in this state of like, I fucking hate all of this so fucking much. And partly it's because I've, I've written a fucking book explaining all this. <laughs> and if these fucking idiots read it, that would be very helpful, which they never will. But anyway. So what we're talking about now, it's not that it's not serious. It's that it is manageable if you are in a country like, I don't know, like Canada in 1980. Right. When there were 6.7 hospital beds for every thousand Canadians. By the time the pandemic hit, that number dropped to 2.52. Okay. We were in crisis before this pandemic. We have a healthcare crisis. We don't have an Omicron crisis. We're number 95 globally. We're one of the lowest numbers of that key statistic. How many hospital beds per thousand Canadians? Number 95, one of the lowest of any developed country. United States, by the way, is higher than us. They have 2.9 hospital beds per thousand people. Italy is higher. France is higher. Japan has 13 beds per thousand people. So these are public policy questions. These are questions about a healthcare system that was in crisis and at capacity before this happened. But we've had two years to make accommodations and to change this. Mm -hmm. And so the relationship between the media scaring the hell out of the public and yelling at its own readership and then Doug Ford acting surprised, right? Oh, uh, you know, I I know that I I thought everything was going to be okay. But Omicron isn't like the other variants. It's much, much more transmissible. So the math isn't on our side. It's about an act of nature. It's about uh, an act of God. It's about Omicron. Yeah. Okay. So I want to cover a whole bunch of of different things. First of all, on the question of people who are unvaccinated, you know, we we haven't even gone to each of their residences with a vial saying, hey, can we give you the dose right now? And I think that that right alone is proof that we actually as a society, you know, politically didn't really care about getting to as high a vaccination rate as possible. When you don't actually bring the vaccines to the last people who are not vaccinated, you cannot say you tried everything. And for sure, there's going to be a a solid block. I I think it's a bit higher than you think, Jesse. I think that there's probably a solid 10 percent of Canadians that just will not get vaccinated under any circumstances. And then the question becomes, what do we do with them? Back in October and November, I was writing a lot online in an article about how it's it's unbelievable that we have no policy to deal with the unvaccinated. And I don't mean by telling them that they're not going to get, you know, ICU care if they get uh, COVID, which I mean, that's one option that was not considered by the federal government, or at least wasn't considered publicly and and by any provincial government. What do we do to protect them and their communities from getting COVID? Where do they work? What does the testing regime look like? And all of these other things that, that we should have been doing, rather than assuming that we can vaccinate our way out of this pandemic, which of course has been the message since December 2020, that we can vaccinate our way out of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. We obviously cannot 
It's a massive failure. And all of the people blaming people who are unvaccinated for all of this stuff have completely lost the plot. Well, that's the media carrying the water. Yes. Like, like it is in the interest. There's no big conspiracy, but it's just in the interests of politicians to shift blame totally. onto the public and divide us against each other. And then the media is, is eating, it up, that. eating it up. They, they're just loving it. Yeah. And that's not our job. Our job is to represent the people. Yeah. Our job is to is to represent the interests of the people and the questions of the people to those leaders, not to help them in shifting the blame to the public. Yeah, no, exactly. And a lot of it, I'm sure, is just individualized exasperation on, on their own behalf. And then that also, you know, reminds journalists, like, you know, do you hold a different kind of location within society than the average person blowing off steam? The thing, though, that I think that we just have not had a, a, an adult conversation about is what you've just mentioned. These uh, stats of beds per thousand Canadians. It is incomprehensible how anyone would imagine that our hospital system, which is at 120% capacity in a lot of places in Canada at the flu season in a non-pandemic situation, could have continued with normal routine surgeries that are necessary while also experiencing a pandemic. Like they're just, it is literally not possible. You need to build capacity. That is obvious. And rather than really uh, driving home, like when were the moments where, where the federal government could have created a field hospital, could have invoked the Emergencies Act and actually imposed different kinds of levels of care within communities to take the pressure off of emergency rooms? Like when when were decisions not made and when were conversations had that that then they decided to not do these things? Oh my God, we're lucky that Omicron is mild because oh, totally. it, it, like imagine, imagine if it hadn't been, they knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. It's unfucking believable And so we have that whole kind of reality that, that there's no adult conversation being had by journalists about the failures of the health system to manage this. And instead, we just hear the doctors who are, you know, talking about they're seeing directly. Oh, my God, we're running out of this. We're running out of that. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough staff. There's absolutely no analysis that can be that's useful in any way. It's just like fear, fear, fear. On the other side, and this is something that I think when we had the last episode and the last conversation about Omicron, All of the focus was on death. And this is what I was so frustrated with, because from what I'm seeing, it's pretty obvious that we are not going to hit the death rates that we hit in the first wave. Those were astronomical death rates. And that would be good news if we didn't hit those again. But the problem with focusing on deaths is is twofold. One, it freaks everybody out. And number two, it actually hides what the real problem is, which is what happens when everybody in a society gets sick and not sick like they're going to die, not even sick necessarily like the vast majority won't go to hospital, but they can't go to work. And so this is a conversation that has also been completely absent in the last two years is what do we do when everybody's sick and they can't go to work? Mm -hmm. We have absolutely nothing to help people get through being at home in isolation. They can't get their food. They can't go to the pharmacy. They can't can't go outside for for exercise because they're stuck in their homes. They can't certainly work. They're not getting paid. Like, how is it we've arrived here with absolutely no thinking about just the operation of society? The extent to which we are hearing media about that. I'm hearing like kind of officials talking about, oh, absenteeism and then articles oh, yeah. about like, oh, these people with their burnout. Like, there's this implication that people are being selfish or they're taking advantage of the situation. Yeah. And, and now they're having the conversation because we're seeing the, the impact. But I mean, like just like a month ago, three weeks ago, saying, whoa, 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 if Omicron is as virulent as it is, is running its way through society as fast as it is in South Africa. And then we're seeing in the United Kingdom. What does this mean for the operation of society? It is so stunning to me that that was not the way that the conversation was held. And instead it was, oh, my God, 
everybody's going to die. Like this is the problem is everybody's going to die. And the reason why we're not looking at the, the question of the, from the society perspective is because this, the, the question of society has been completely obscured from the start. You know, even though we have this, this incredible spread right now, there are no large congregate work facilities that are shut down. There's no factories that have been closed. There's no construction sites that have been closed. Everything on the side of big business is operating at like more or less regularly. Restaurants are closed. Bars are closed. Cinemas are closed. Like, you know, anyone in the arts is, again, totally fucked. But it's these large, massive facilities where people have to work no matter what because the profits matter the most. And then, of course, the grocery industry and food food industry is, is in there as well. I feel like we are in a, a whole new phase. Okay, whole, Phase one was don't get sick and die. The vast majority of people were like, yes, I'm on board for not getting sick and dying, and I'll do whatever I can to not get sick and die myself and to protect other people. I am not afraid of getting – I mean, I don't want to get it, but it might. I might get it. I'm not saying it's nothing, but how much am I going to live my life personally in fear of getting this like, – I'm not really willing for my own sake to make that big an adjustment. I am willing for the sake of other people who are more vulnerable than me – to give up a lot of things. But each one of those things is to be negotiated and discussed through a public discourse through the media. And now we're in this phase where we've grandfathered in the politics and the dynamics of the earlier phase where anybody who says the word freedom or civil liberties is considered a nut job. Mm -hmm. The whole renegotiating of the social contract in the previous phase of this was on the basis that this was crisis times. But now we're looking at like, is this how we're gonna live forever? Mm. Is this how we're going to live forever that the government without accountability can just like strip us of everything that makes life meaningful, like music, live performance, socializing, our our kids' education, and we are supposed to just eat it without question? Mm -hmm. Where is the media question? Why are schools closed while shopping malls are open? What scientific basis is there for the curfews that you have in Quebec? What metrics does the government need to reopen? This is the job of the media now, to push these things every fucking day. Every one of the rights that is being taken from us matters. And the basis and the terms on which we agree to temporarily suspend them must be negotiated in public discourse every single time they want to take it away from us. This looks at the political currency of these things. And the version of this in Quebec is the curfew. The curfew where everyone's like, well, what the fuck good does this actually do? It's popular in the sense that it shows that we have a premier that's taking care, that wants us in bed, that wants us at homes, comfortable, warm, out of the cold. And even though people in Montreal are raging against the decision, Legault doesn't care because Montreal's don't vote like for the CAC. So that's not where his base of support is. I have no patience for the interpretation of these things along partisan lines. I mean, I'm not even like interested in taking shots at this politician or that. You know, as we're recording this, we find out that the federal government actually can do something and they're shipping 140 million rapid tests. That would have been really helpful a month ago. And now it turns out that they actually are able to do that. I think that rather than applause for that, the question is like, well, what the fuck took you so long? But again, it, it has nothing to do with what works. And, and this is, I think, what's driving people so crazy. What I see on social media is this Begging, people begging their governments to do something that makes sense, to do something that is actually going to help. 
And governments are like, fuck, we don't care. We're not fucking listening to you guys. Like, we're here to protect the bottom line of the country. We're here to make sure the profits continue to roll on and that, you know, business is happy. And then in the middle of all this are the journalists who are way too often just reporting things, either as stenography, so with absolutely no analysis, or the reporting things as if there is a logic to what they're doing. And that logic isn't literally protecting capital and protecting their popularity. And instead, journalists are trying to tell us that there's a logic, there's a a public health logic behind a lot of the measures that they're taking. To the extent that journalists are in good faith in their efforts to scare people into compliance, I just don't know how much more advancement we can make against (laughs) this thing through, through like the fear lever. None. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Nora, will you duly note something for our listeners? Yeah, I'm going to duly note something that's hilarious um, because I think that we need some of that. And why not? Jesse, have you heard about this uh, this Sunwing flight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say more than that. Have you heard about this? <laughs> I I did. I did. Okay. Uh, I, yes. So um, there is a chartered flight, a Sunwing flight from Montreal that was full of Quebec's brightest and best influencers from television shows like Occupation Double. And I have to say, I work very hard to have no fucking idea what the hell that even is. So they fly down to uh, Mexico and on board, a rave breaks out. Uh, People are smoking and drinking their own alcohol and basically having different kinds of sex in the plane. The flight attendants have to like hide for the rest of the flight. And when they land, Sunwing is like, fuck you guys. That was fucked. You're going to have to get home by yourselves. We're canceling your return flight. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, You know, look. 
in this judgy uh, <laughs> time of ours, when there's a certain pleasure in hating strangers online, you know, the reflexive response to the story was like, oh, these fucking animals, these terrible people. It sounded kind of awesome. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <I> totally. <laughs> this I've is seen the part this, that like, I that would be fun. <laughs> my favorite part of that story was at the ending of that story when they, like, negotiate with this, like, charter flight of reality star Quebecois influencers as if they were, like, terrorist hijackers? Like, here, listen to this. <laughs> the airline said it provided the tour group leader conditions to ensure the safety of passengers and crew on their return flight. Unfortunately, this is a quote, unfortunately, the group did not accept the terms. <laughs> like, we'll take, we'll, we will let you fly home if you stop fucking in the bathroom of this airplane. <laughs> oh, bathroom if we're lucky. I think it was the, I think it was the aisle. No, rejected. We do not agree. <laughs> Uh, we've made the unfortunate decision to cancel the return flight. So they are assumedly in Cancun partying down. Forever. Forever. Just until this is over. I mean, God bless them. And and also, it just seems like a quintessentially Quebec news story. Oh, I yeah. just can't imagine a plane load of, of Saskatoon influencers doing the same thing. <laughs> God bless you, filthy bastards. Duly noted. <laughs> Um, hold on. I was going to do that one, but you oh, did shit. It. no, you did it better. <laughs> so I have another one. I was, one. I was wondering on. how you had the, the quotes up. <laughs> right. Nora, I want to duly note a story from the National Post. One of these winter holiday stories looking ahead. Prominent Canadians give us their predictions for 2022. Oh. A little fluffy piece of, uh, of, uh, holiday season reading. Who are these prominent Canadians who are giving us their predictions? I want to know what predictions for 2022 uh, prominent Canadians such as Biff Naked. <laughs> Great. I'd, I'd love to hear what she's thinking. Yeah. Okay. I, I know who that is. Prominent. Okay. You know, more, more than most. Uh, Andy Kim. What are your – Andy Kim. Uh, Sean McCann. Oh, I love Sean McCann. I don't know who that is. Leona Boyd. <laughs> Crystal Shawanda. I'm getting lost here. I've never heard of yeah. any of these people. Jarvis Church. I went to I went to high school with his uh, niece. You're you're doing better here than I. <laughs> Maybe you know who's prominent. And then Hannah Alper. That's the list of prominent Canadians. I think if most people read this, maybe you know some of these people. Maybe like me, you only have heard of one of them. But <laughs> but you may be asking, as many in the comments were. These are your prominent Canadians? And it's a bit of a head-scratcher as to w how, why they couldn't get more well-known people. Well, uh, <laughs> it was pointed out by 1236, which is a newsletter, that every one of these people on this list of prominent Canadians in this National Post article, every one of them is a client of the publicist Eric Alper. <laughs> who's this, uh, he's this like guy on social media yeah. who, who's all about like classic rock and shit. And somehow, I guess he's a really fucking good publicist because somehow he got the national post to publish a story where every prominent Canadian happens to be his client, except I'm sorry, I got that wrong. The final person on this list, um, is not a client of his, to my knowledge, not like, you know, kind of a unknown musician who's a client of Eric Alper's, but no, Hannah Alper, his daughter is one of the problems. <laughs> he got his daughter. Like, this is a good publicist. I need to hire Eric Alper so that uh, I can be on the list of magnificent Canadians whose uh, predictions are in a national newspaper. Uh, duly noted. <laughs> so, Nora, 
Typically, when a disgruntled CBC employee leaves the CBC in a rage and decides to speak freely and tell all from their years and story meetings about everything that's fucked up with the CBC, they're going public, they're going to be blogging about it, they're going to be podcasting about it. Well, damn, that's my jam. You know, <laughs> I, I, I am very much here for it. In fact, uh, that is what happened this week when Tara Henley who has been, by her account, uh, she started at the CBC in 2013 and has resigned and has now launched a Substack and uh, a new podcast all about why she left the CBC. I didn't see the podcast part. It's about why she left the CBC or it's just a new podcast? Well, the, uh, well there's only one episode out, which is about how woke culture is ruining newsrooms. <laughs> I don't know what the, I don't know what the podcast is going to be out going forward, but that was what the right. first one was about. You know, I was intrigued by this Substack uh, essay by Tara Henley, and I was really taken aback by the response. Now, it's pretty easy to get, uh, you know, defund CBC to be a trending topic. Uh, an ex CBC or talking about how the CBC is too woke is going to get a pretty strong social media response. Yeah, but this I think was like a new level. Like this was like Aaron O'Toole responded to her. Hey, Tara, let's get together and talk about how to fix the CBC. Uh, it was picked up by British News. It was picked up by Glenn Greenwald uh, yeah. shared it. It was, of course, reprinted across Post Media. It was written about by many columnists. It, it, it went viral beyond Canada as an expose on the woke culture of the CBC. And in the essay, Tara Henley writes that um, to work at the CBC is to enthusiastically sign on to a radical political agenda. Nora, I'm curious about your thoughts on that take. <laughs> uh, where do I start? <laughs> this was the first thing I read when I woke up yesterday. I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm still on holiday. I'm going to open my phone. Oh, uh, CBC Tell All. Mm, let's see. Oh, she thought that the public broadcaster hit its peak in 2013 and has dropped since then. Okay. That's a, that's a tell of uh, someone that doesn't know what the fuck's going on. And, um, yeah, she used all the buzzwords. I think it's pretty obvious that it's grift and, I guess, you know, good for her and finding how to do grift very well to launch a substack. But, you know, a lot of people obviously responded to say that she's acting out against an increased diversity, increased representation as well within uh, the public broadcaster, and that she really represents a lot of the same kinds of people that really plague the, the corporation. And so that's, I think, an important point that she's very much not an outsider, that she probably was going to quit anyway and decided to do this because she'd go viral. But, I mean, it's laughable. It's completely fucking hilarious and laughable. And the idea that the CBC is radical in any sense – I mean, they're radical centrists. They're really radical centrists. They really adhere to that center as hard as they can. Um, but radical to the left is like – I mean, has – I know she's a book editor. Maybe I should just anonymously mail her some fucking reading to do – to learn what the left actually is. I don't know. Well, look, I think that the way in which stories get discussed – at a CBC news story meeting is endlessly revealing and interesting, right? The way in which where things are at in the public discourse, in news coverage, and especially at the CBC where they do not necessarily have the same independence to be like, we're a right-wing pub, we're a left-wing. Like they are trying to kind of like circle the square of representing everybody and, and avoiding liability and trying to get it right. But there are, there are real journalists there. But like the way that that stuff gets played out in story meetings – I would love 
I always want to know if somebody's ready to speak freely about that. My big issue with this essay is that there's no examples. If Tara <laughs> is going to be divulging what happened to inform her conclusion that the problem with the CBC is radical woke politics, I would hope that we would get some discussion of, of, of specifics. And yeah. it ain't in there. And I guess I also feel like, look, I've spent time on you know, a radicalized uh, humanities department, I guess, of a, of a university. And I've spent time at the CBC and they ain't the same thing. <laughs> to think that the ways in which the bureaucrats and the bureaucratized editorial process of the CBC absorbs and applies shifts in politics. Like there was a racial reckoning. It wasn't just the CBC. There was a racial reckoning in newsrooms around the world. And CBC was caught flat-footed and scrambled to adjust and to not be shamed and humiliated as they were being. And I'm sure that that had impacts on the way things were being done in story meetings. And I really want to know how that played out. But it wasn't the left, the radical left, that you're answering to in those meetings. It's like some CBC producer, executive producer taking orders from higher ups and trying to tr like, I, I, yeah, <laughs> Nora, I want I, I actually want to know more from Tara, which is why I've asked her for an interview and uh, she's agreed. Oh, great. So anytime a journalist wants to like actually divulge what happened in that building in the editorial process, I am all ears for it. I am probably more open to than you to exploring, I guess, what's like at the core of this, which is like, how has the shift in politics writ large affected the editorial process? I don't doubt that the way that some people interpret politics becomes dogmatic and can affect the editorial process. Yeah, no, no, no. So I actually think that there's a lot of stuff that she did write that's very interesting that we need to engage with or that I'd like to engage with myself and that I read it as someone who is endlessly critical and who is formally shut out of these fucking spaces, unlike her who had to, she had the job and she quit. I mean, God, imagine having that fucking privilege. But what she talks about is very, very interesting because on one hand you have you know this corporation that that swallows up these new trends and the trends in this case the, the trends of, of of representation and diversity which are really important and really good they swallow them up and then they spit them out in this centrified neoliberal individualized or atomized kind of way and so rather than hearing about I don't know, some big phenomenon like um, the corporate profits of Loblaws, you might hear the the nice little story of someone who's worked for Loblaws for 65 years and whatever, and then their their colleagues all bought them a present, and then that's the story, right? Like you get this, and that, that's kind of a ridiculous example, but this, you know, go to any website of any CBC uh, station in this country and you'll see stories like that, that it's very individualized and, and there's always some sort of cutesy kind of hook. And this is a, especially the case for CBC Radio where... Um, stories about your family history, exploring your family history, exploring identity. You don't really fit in with Canadian society, but maybe you do. And, and these stories are really interesting and they're great unless they take up all the space, which is kind of where we're at now, where that is the dominant kind of storytelling that we get from the national public broadcaster is these very specific, very individualized and very atomized kind of stories that take the place of analysis. Well, that's that's what she was saying. I mean, that, she was exactly. saying that, that we don't have enough stories about uh, labor and about exactly. uh, housing and inequity because we're, uh, but then she blamed it, like it was, a. It, I guess she blamed it on a mixture of clickbait, but then also that uh, it seems like she believes that, I guess, identity politics stories are 
somehow sucking away from that other, like, I get that, that was her argument as I understand it. Yeah, no, exactly. And so this is where I find it so fascinating because she doesn't then make the proper conclusion, which is that the CBC is doing this because they don't want to anger those in power because they want to uphold power, which is a right wing response, not a left wing response. And so then I'm wondering, okay, so who's coaching her? Because this went from zero to 100 very quickly, as you identified. She used all the right words and it got into the right faces. And I've never seen a Substack then taken up by like MSN.com or the Post Media chain, which I also thought was very interesting. I'm just seeing now it's it's the front of the National Post, a big issue. Right. Like, I mean, to anybody launching an independent media thing, part of me is just like, well, well done. Well, so <laughs> it's know? not like, just her. I mean, I, I don't want to give her tons of credit here because like you go back through her stories this woman is not an ideologue like her stories are not at all left wing at all at all she's not the one writing about the billionaires she's not the one writing about um all the things that she says we should be writing about so this is why i think this this is all bullshit well it's a bit weird too because she's like decrying clickbait but then some of her published stuff is sponsored content that she did with oh CBC. totally no, exactly. But uh, she was also apparently working behind the scenes uh, as a producer on shows where she wouldn't be a byline journalist. So for I'll sure, take her, for sure. her word that she was there for, you know, I, I, actually, I'm looking forward to, to finding out because you, you would you would think from this piece that this is a person who spent, I think even in the British press, they called her a veteran CBC journalist. <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll find out. But, uh, you know, the, the idea is that this is a person who's been involved in like news discussions across this public broadcaster because there are some pretty big statements made about all CBC journalists journalists in this yeah. in this essay that's that's gone so big and I don't doubt, like, I mean, I, of course, the behind the scenes stuff is not going to be public. I don't doubt that she's been in those conversations or whatever. And and certainly, like, you know, from what I have seen, like, you know, I was on a show once where we had to run uh, uh, before we were recording and the host asked uh, a person on the panel to not say what they were saying because it was too left wing and he had to change what he was saying and he did that. I mean, for sure, this stuff happens within the corporation, but it's never from the left. I mean, that is where it's just so offensive because as someone who is left wing and who is literally fucking banned from these spaces, you know, other than the conversation, which I did until the last four months, they've stopped asking me on for some reason at the CBC National on Sunday mornings. It's very, very confusing to see what exactly is is her end game if it isn't just grift. Because as I say, all of the signs are there that this is just a way to try and launch uh, some sort of independent reporter career to be like not woke. And, it, and it's damaging. It's very damaging because it's confusing to average people who might look at this and say, well, yes, I've also noticed that CBC focuses on these personalized stories at the expense of these larger analytical stories. And then they come up with the wrong conclusion, which is, oh, and that's because of wokeism. It isn't because of wokeism. It's like neoliberal policy within the CBC to make sure that nothing challenges power. That's what's happening. And you can see it on every single show. Like if we're going to talk about racism in Canada, oh, no, you know what? It's better to talk about race in the United States. If we're going to talk about issues that are like, you know, indigenous issues. Well, it's better if we focus on individual, like their own personal experience. And and those would be fine if we also had the bigger stories too, but we just don't. And I also want to mention too, that like I saw some people saying, where's all the voices of, uh, that would have, that should have supported Tara Thorne, who is the arts and culture writer for CBC Halifax, who was summarily fired for making a hilarious joke about the premier of the province having sex. Okay, that's Shortcuts. Nora, thank you. Thank you. Hey, we're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Uh, I can be emailed about this show or anything else at jesse at CanadaLand.com, and I, I read everything you send. 
Nora, where can people find you? Well, I'm just about to launch a new scandal because I've started a Substack. So um, get there before the scandal launches. Um, it's noraloretto.substack.com <laughs> or you can find me at uh, at nolore on Twitter. Grift. What just promotion? You can have something to say and try to get people to pay attention to it. Is it, is it necessarily <laughs> grift? Speaking of which, we have a, a great uh, episode of Commons. Uh, Backbench will be returning. Check out CanadaLand.com for all of our shows. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, you can support us by hitting the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.